Welcome to Smart Construction, a podcast covering the latest trends and developments in construction contracts. This podcast series is for anyone in the construction industry who is interested in learning more about collaborative contracting as opposed to the traditional, more adversarial approach. Welcome to Smart Construction. I'm Alison Bearpark, construction partner in Roland Daily German and your host today. Today, we're going to discuss building information modeling or BIM. The use of level two BIM and upwards is a form of collaborative contracting because it is a model that is shared among the construction professionals in one coherent system rather than separate sets of 2D drawings. While BIM has been around for some time, I certainly know that I'm hearing more about it in the last 12 to 18 months. UK government funded projects have been required to use BIM level two since 2016. It has also been successfully used on a number of building projects in Ireland in recent years. Most recently here in Ireland, in June, the Building Innovation Report was published by the Construction Sector Group. And in that report, they stated that the publication of a graduated timetable for mandating BIM in the procurement of public projects was an action on the OGP. Standard form contracts also refer to BIM. In the JCT, it is included as a contract document. The NEC4, released in 2017, included information modelling as a new option clause. And most recently, the UK has published a new information protocol for use on BIM-enabled projects. So BIM in its current form or a more advanced form is here to stay. BIM is used by many designers and contractors, but there's also many construction professionals who don't use BIM. Barriers to use may be for reasons such as low client demand, cost and lack of training. In future podcasts, we'll look at other aspects of BIM, but this podcast is for those who work in the construction industry who want to learn a little bit more about building information modelling. We will also discuss some key considerations around intellectual property rights on a construction project more generally and on a BIM-enabled construction project. After all, BIM is data. We are joined here today by Aaron Timms and Dermot Gavin. Aaron Timms is an architect and senior project manager at Virtus. He has extensive experience in Ireland and internationally with particular expertise in healthcare infrastructure and multi-unit residential developments. Aaron has first-hand experience of BIM and is here today to give us his practical insights. My colleague Dermot is a partner in RDJ's corporate and commercial department with expertise in technology and outsourcing projects and intellectual property. Thank you both for joining me here today. Dermot, before we look specifically at BIM, would you mind telling us what intellectual property rights are and how they're relevant to construction projects? Yes, Alison. So intellectual property rights are a form of legal protection for ideas, brand names and creativities. And what they do is they essentially confer monopoly or exclusive rights on the owner, which prevent others from exploiting or abusing that intellectual creation. They're also assets, so they can be transferred, they can be licensed or used as collateral. There are a variety of forms of intellectual property rights, which will be very evident from the broad way in which intellectual property is often defined in contracts. But the principal rights under Irish law will be patents, which protect inventions, trademarks, which protect brand names and logos, design rights, which protect the outward appearance of a product, 
Um, you have copyright, which protects um, literary, dramatic, musical, artistic works, photographs, sound recordings, computer programs and databases. And it's important not to forget the general law of confidentiality and recent EU legislation harmonizing the law around trade secrets, which would protect uh, confidential know-how or, or trade secret information. When it comes to construction projects, construction projects by their nature will involve the use, creation and sharing of materials, processes or technologies, all of which uh, can be subject to intellectual property protection. By far, the most common form of, of intellectual property protection will be copyright, and this will cover things like graphic works, diagrams, plans, drawings, maps, photographs, site models, even the construction contract itself uh, will be subject to copyright. But you could also have scenarios where patent technology might be relevant, for example, in certain process technologies uh, in the engineering sector, uh, particularly uh, manufacturing facilities, uh, and to a lesser extent, design rights and trade secrets may also be relevant. Thanks, Dermot. And you mentioned there that copyright was one of the most important IP rights to construction projects. What makes copyright different to other intellectual property rights and what are the particular issues that people need to be aware of in relation to copyright? Well, copyright is one of the oldest forms of intellectual property rights, but it's also the more complex ones. Uh, there are a number of aspects of copyright uh, which require um, intellectual property clauses to be drafted in a correct manner. I think the first thing to note is that copyright subsists automatically in a work once it meets the originality test. It doesn't have to be inventive, novel or, or distinctive. It just has to be the original work of the author. And there's no need for registration. So while you might sometimes see a copyright symbol put on documents, that's not necessary for protection. It, auto, it arises automatically. Therefore, I suppose it's ubiquitous and comes into existence far easier than, say, a patent or design right. So we just need to be conscious of that and, and make sure that we are aware of the different types of material that can be subject to copyright protection. Copyright is also a bundle of rights. Um, so it's not just one particular right. Uh, you have a reproduction right, which covers copying, um, uh, but also conversion into another medium or uh, copying a work from two-dimensional work into a three-dimensional work and vice versa. It also includes a, a communication right, so the right to make it available to the public or the third parties, as well as an adaptation right, uh, covering derivative works and moral rights, all of which need to be appropriately addressed in uh, the contract in terms of the scope of a license. It also survives for a very long time, um, 70 years from the death of an author or in the case of a computer program when it was first made available to the public. And this is to be contrasted, say, with patents, which are generally granted for 20 years, um, though there are extensions in, in the pharmaceutical sector, uh, and trademarks which have a 10-year lifespan, though they can be renewed. So it, it stays around for quite a long time. Um, and finally, there is a distinction in copyright law between ownership and authorship. So while ownership of the work can be assigned or transferred, uh, there are certain rights that remain with the author and cannot be assigned. These are known as moral rights, such as the paternity right, the right to be recognized as the author of the work, and the integrity right, which is the right to uh, object to any derogatory treatment of the work. Uh, these cannot be assigned. They remain with the author indefinitely. So it is important that the author signs uh, a waiver of those rights in, in certain circumstances, because that could in, uh, in restrict or impede uh, the use of a copyright work down the line. It's really interesting to get that background because all too often I think that in construction contracts 
particularly that there's the, you have your IP clause and um, they tend not to go as reviewed as they, they probably should. So it, it's interesting to get a little bit more detail about what copyright and, and IP actually means. When dealing with IP issues in construction projects, Dermot, are there any key issues that you think you can just highlight now that should be addressed in a construction contract? I like to think that in any contract, um, there are three fundamental issues that need to be considered when you're dealing with IP. They are ownership, access and infringement of third party rights. Um, Ownership is important because copyright will vest in the person who creates the work, subject to, say, a limited exception for works created by employees in the course of their employment. There's no concept of work for hire under Irish law as might exist, say, in the US. Um, there used to be an old exception for commissioned artistic works under older legislation, but this has since been repealed. Therefore, if ownership is to belong to the employer and not, say, the contractor who created the work, then this will need to be stated in the contract. Identifying ownership is also important in ascertaining what rights can be granted and if somebody has the right to provide access to another person. The second issue to look at is access, and this is generally in the form of a license, and I consider this often to be more important than ownership. Um, This is of paramount importance in a construction project because the copyright material that is created, say, at the nascent stages of a construction project will be needed for use at various stages during the life cycle of a building. You take it, for example, things like construction, sales and marketing of the building, uh, maintenance, repairs, extensions, and even the ultimate demolition of the building will all require access and use to copyright material. But in addition to this range of use, there will also be a variety of different people or stakeholders who will need access to copyright material, either to copy it, distribute it, or adapt it for a particular purpose. And without the appropriate access rights, a person using copyright material without the permission of the owner will be infringing that owner's rights and could be subject to an injunction uh, or order to pay damages to the copyright owner. So when it comes to looking at access, you know, there are a couple of key terms that need to be reflected in the licenses. Generally, they should be irrevocable and and non-terminable due to the the long life cycle of a building. Perpetual license is not the same as an irrevocable license. Uh, Perpetual license can be terminated. So using the words like irrevocable or non-terminable are important. Uh, It generally should be royalty free and fully paid up. Um, fee-bearing licenses are not really common and the risk with a fee-bearing license is if that it isn't paid then the license could be subject to termination. They generally should be non-exclusive particularly where the material may need to be shared with multiple parties for different purposes. They should also be sub-licensable so an employer may need to grant access to others. There can be sometimes a debate over whether it needs to be transferable or not, particularly if the contract itself in which the license is obtained is transferable. But, but generally, an employer will insist on it being transferable. And finally, these licenses need to clearly and sufficiently set out the permitted uses of the copyrighted material. And this is where attention can uh, arise between, say, the interests of the contractor who is trying to protect their intellectual creation and their ability to monetize it at a future date and, and the employer who's you know, pretty much wants freedom to operate at a later point in time. Finally, on the infringement issue, it is appropriate that any person who is using material that has been supplied to them or created by another party in the construction project is protected if it transpires that that material uh, infringes the rights of a third party. And this could be because the supplying party 
did not obtain the necessary licenses, assignments, consents or waivers in the first instance, or simply plagiarized or copied the work of a third party. And this type of protection will usually take the form of um, warranties and indemnities in the construction contract. Great, thanks for that. And just, you, you mentioned ownership of the, the IP. Should an employer insist on acquiring ownership or will a license generally be sufficient for an employer or a client's purposes under, under a construction contract? Although an employer's instinct might be to look for an assignment and acquire ownership, in general terms, um, the practice would be for a license to be granted. There's no real right or wrong answer on this it will come down to a case-by-case analysis of what is appropriate for the particular project and the material in question and this might require a different approach depending on 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 the material at issue factors that will be relevant um, in determining who should own the copyright will include things such as can the contractor actually assign the copyright in the first instance Uh, the contractor may not own all copyright material to begin with, especially if they have subcontracted elements of the design or have licensed in certain materials from third parties. So they may not own the copyright to begin with and ownership is a prerequisite to assignment. The second factor would be, I suppose, whether the contractor wants to exploit the material in a future date on other construction projects. So in that instance, it would be more appropriate for the contractor to retain ownership and and grant a license to uh, the employer. And thirdly, there could be aspects of the project that the employer wants to obtain exclusivity. And this could be of particular importance, say, in the development of buildings for franchise or retail network, where the operator of these uh, networks will want to restrict others, particularly competitors, from from copying uh, the building design and layout of their outlets. And in that case, ownership might be more appropriate in that instance, though equally it could be achieved through exclusive licensing. So it really comes down to what are the requirements and needs of the parties in each case. That's really interesting. Um, And I I have to say, in my experience, generally, I only really ever see a license being granted rather than the employer or the client acquiring ownership. But they may have been on non-BIM enabled projects. And I feel that, you know, ownership is probably a little bit more of a concern for BIM enabled projects. And we might chat about that later on. So thanks for that, Dermot. And Aaron, this is probably a good time to move from just a general overview of, of intellectual property rights and start to look at BIM. Can you explain BIM to us, Aaron, in in very simple terms? Sure, awesome, no problem. Um, at the end of the day, it is like BIM is just data. The uh, the questions about what is BIM, what are the different levels of BIM, what is BIM maturity, et cetera, they're all slightly different versions of the same question in the sense that BIM is is just this new way of working effectively within an information space that's ultimately about a database that holds information uh, with various interfaces and these other dimensions could be, you know, four, five, six, and seven, if you you want to go that far, could be considered essentially time, cost, and then ultimately other uh, information that can be, that that can live within the database that might might be considered in another dimension, like uh, how you preserve sustainability metrics within the design but ultimately, it's it's all just kind of layers and layers of data at the end of the day. And the question is, well, how how complicated is that model? 
what is the purpose of the data store and, and how it sort of travels, I suppose, through the, the BIM process, if you will. The, the, four, the four different levels of BIM are reasonably well understood and, and, and set out originally in, in, in UK guidance, uh, levels 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4. But uh, level zero BIM is essentially, uh, it's the baseline and it means, it means no collaboration. And it doesn't necessarily mean no collaboration because obviously back uh, before Autodesk Revit or what have you, people were still collaborating, um, you know, and we've even had email for quite some time. But it, it essentially means that it's 2D drafting. So it's CAD drafting using a particular tool Okay, so it's just planar. And um, the output is, let's say, paper or electronic media of, of, of different kinds. Now, coordination has to happen. Even the smallest construction project, a house extension, for instance, requires the designers to collaborate, of course. So it doesn't actually mean no collaboration. It just means no BIM, let's say. Level, level one BIM, then, is early stage coordination and collaboration within an information space using a 3D uh, modeling tool. And I suppose the big change there is, is that there's an information exchange within the 3D space. Typically, you'd have the CDE at that point. I think we talk about that in a minute. So that's the common data environment. I think that uh, level, level one is, is where most people are. Still, frankly, even though UK Level 2 and, and, and Ireland Level 2 BIM is, is stated as the appropriate standard, particularly for, for, for large projects and, and, and all government priority projects at this point in the public sector. But the big change from 1 to 2 is actually about the standardization of that collaboration. Most of the industry is still trying to transition, in my view, from 1 through 2 successfully. But ultimately, level two is the benchmark, and it has been for some time. Uh, level three, if we're being honest, is aspirational at best. Uh, it requires kind of massive, massive change, I think, on a practical, cultural, and infrastructural level. You're talking about smart buildings, smart, smart cities, IoT, all, all, of, all of that kind of stuff. And we need, to get, we need to get level two right first. Thanks for that, Aaron. Interesting what you say about, you know, I often see BIM level two quoted, but you know what you say about us really probably being at level one and needing to get level two right. And I think a lot of the commentary at the moment following the coronavirus is that the coronavirus has been a disruptor in the market and that the good thing about it in relation to, to technology and the construction industry is that it is accelerating our use of technology. So hopefully people and um, bodies and governments will all get behind where we are now in the use of technology and we will start to get that BIM level two right and see that being used more frequently. Uh, I also think it's really interesting what you said about BIM level zero, meaning no BIM not, and not necessarily no collaboration because you often see it quoted that BIM level zero involves no collaboration. But I, I think that it's really important to remember that 
collaboration on projects always involves people. So it's not necessarily the contracts that you use or the technology that you use. You need the people there in the middle to bring all that together. So that's probably a theme that we're going to touch on later on um, in other podcasts when we're looking at the form of collaborative contracts that you can use and the fact that people are really central to collaboration on, on projects. And Aaron, you mentioned the common data environment. So what is that? It's part of this information space but it's essentially the separate third-party element where the data is stored. And, and uh, in 2020, it's virtually assured that that's a cloud server, that it's a fairly evolved uh, technological offer by what is increasingly a small handful of, of very sophisticated companies, basically. And they can host it at any stage, but ideally they host it from the beginning to the end through all seven dimensions. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a, not only a, a permanent archive and record of what you did when, it's actually an active collaboration tool in its own right. If you're using BIM and you're using BIM properly, it's baked into the employer's information requirements. It's very clearly the, the, how it's used, what it is, the training up of all the, of, all, of all the user groups, the user base for that given project. Uh, all of that's outlined in the BIM execution plan, and it, it just now happens, and it has to happen early in the job. Frankly, you should be doing it from the beginning, and uh, the, the employer uh, and or his or her designate should uh, own and operate this with appropriate authority. Thanks, Aaron. That's great. And I'll bring Dermot back in in a few minutes just to talk about maybe some of the intellectual property issues that we might need to consider when we're looking at the CDE. But before we go on to that, I just wanted to ask you, Aaron, I know you have a lot of experience working internationally. Can you tell us your experience with BIM on international projects? I think one of the most interesting ones is just because it's, 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 it's slightly counterintuitive, is I, I, I recall uh, we, were, we were five stories down in the basement of the main clinical tower for a large PPP hospital that I was working on in Montreal. So this is, there were three towers on this job, by the way. It was a city, it was an entire city block and a half downtown Montreal. Uh, the main tower is 21 stories uh, with five basement levels. And, uh, and, and I remember a, a, a late change to um, a seismic design response was essential because this was a, this was a tier one hospital that in any kind of acute scenario had to, had to still be standing after the worst possible conceivable earthquake anywhere nearby. Um, and, and that had actually massive implications on the structural frame across the board, obviously traveling down into the, into the rock. In, in the ground, uh, I recall a, a particular rock anchor. This is, this is just really funny. Uh, a particular rock anchor. This is huge. These are meters and meters long, and the head of it starts, sticks out, and, and, and you know, architects get upset because it, it starts infringing on actual space that they'd earlier designed, uh, where there was supposed to be stuff and not just a void for the head of a rock anchor. You know, three stories below the ground. Uh, we actually had to model that in BIM. This is quite unusual that you would do this, particularly at this stage of the job. And we had, because of the complexities of all the interfaces in this particular location, we had to model the rock anchor one-to-one -one accurately in BIM and then clash detect in, in, in Navisworks based on the revised clinical arrangements that weren't fully approved at the time, but we just didn't, we had to get it done. You know, this is, this is serious time and money involved. You know, we were able to look at this on a big screen in one of our meeting rooms and, and solve the problem in real time and like it was just it was actually amazing and this is what BIM allows you to do but you have to have people that are capable 
That's great. Really interesting, Aaron. And that project in Canada sounds like it was um, incredibly interesting to work on. Dermot, are there any IP issues that we need to consider on a BIM-enabled project over and above the issues that we discussed at the beginning of this um, podcast? So I suppose, for example, does the use of a common data environment create issues around ownership and sharing of that CD? To my mind, BIM will force contracting parties to carefully consider the issues of ownership, access and infringement in greater detail than just simply relying on template wording of an industry standard template construction agreement. I think the key issue around BIM and particularly the common data environment is collaboration. So Aaron mentioned there will be you know, federated designs so people will contribute and own what they contribute. But then you have this issue where people may be jointly collaborating on a particular aspect of the model and then issues around joint ownership might arise. So it does require clear demarcation of ownership. On the issue of joint ownership, I think that is problematic from an intellectual property perspective because there is little or no legislative framework regulating joint ownership outside the field of patents. And it's therefore left to the parties to regulate their relationship through a properly crafted joint ownership and management agreement, which invariably is never done and will bring with it its own set of complexities and complications, particularly around sub-licensing assignment of your share in the jointly owned uh, intellectual property and, and survivorship issues where one of the parties uh, becomes insolvent or ceases to exist. So if at all possible, I would encourage parties to avoid joint ownership and you know, pay ownership to, to just one of the parties. But also licenses and access rights would be uh, critical, not just to the material itself or the data itself, but also to the environment in which it's held. And Aaron mentioned about the need for, you know, proper stewardship and and ownership of the common data environment, that this should really rest with the employer or its um, nominated representative, because that in itself can become an issue, as we've seen in case law in the UK with the the Trant-Mott-McDonald case. Also, the more open nature of collaboration in, in BIM projects means that attention will be need to be paid to, I suppose, the contractual nexus that exists between the various collaborators. So not all of the collaborators may be on the same contract, um, which therefore underscores the need for any licenses to include sub-licensing rights, particularly as there may not be a direct contractual relationship between two of the collaborators in a BIM enabled project. And this is this is a structure that has been developed um, in the latest information protocol that's been published in the UK, um, where there is a strong emphasis on the ability of um, a licensee to grant sub-licenses for the permitted use within the project. What becomes really apparent to me during this conversation is that as a solicitor, there's so much happening in the background that we're not aware of on construction projects and on in relation to BIM. And sometimes BIM may even be used and we might not necessarily know about it. So I think that, you know, my takeaway from this conversation is that the onus is on me now to ask a client if BIM is being used and to make sure that I look at the construction contract with the view to thinking about BIM. Something I heard recently was some good advice was that if you are using BIM in a project was to look at all of those 
contentious issues. So your time and cost events in a contract through the lens of BIM. So, you know, what happens if access is denied to the common data environment? Does that give a contractor an entitlement to an extension of time? That sort of thing. So, so a lot is happening on, on like away from the, the, the legals, but we really need to concentrate, I think, on it now and see if BIM is being used in a project and look at our contracts and look at the protocols and make sure that they fit the needs of the parties. And Dermot, with that in mind, are there any tips that you have from an IP perspective for a client using BIM on a project? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier on, I mean, access to the CDE will be as important as access to the actual intellectual property itself. Um, and, and we've seen that become an issue in certain projects where access hasn't been provided and that has frustrated the contract and, and led to litigation. So it's important that that is addressed and appropriately managed in, in the contract um, so that you know no one party can, can frustrate the actual development of the project. It can also be an issue around infringement as well because you know you, you can give your infringement indemnities and, and warranties over the material you create, but if it's been tinkered and modified or incorporated in with other materials, uh, you need to make sure that those indemnities exclude any liability arising in respect of that integration or further enhancements by other parties. Thanks, Dermot. Aaron, would you mind letting us know if there's any other technological advancements that you were seeing on a construction site? I suppose for us solicitors sitting in an office, we, we don't see much in terms of innovation in relation to the construction industry. Is there anything else that you're seeing being used? Some of the more interesting technologies that I've come across in recent years, uh, I guess a uh, year and a half, two years ago, I trialed a fully immersive uh, VR kit in um, Arabs, Dublin office. They were just showing it to me for uh, actually what was a fairly small job at the time, but um, they, were, they, they were setting up a studio to do this, to facilitate client walkthroughs, basically, you know, and, but it, you're literally walking through the building, you're seeing the real building. And so, so all of the dimensions of the model that might have been in the model at the time, and it, it's not just the 3D space, you could have finishes, you could have, you could use it for, for scheduling purposes, you could, you could, you could introduce different kinds of rendering if you want to look at impact of daylights and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's, it's there and you, you literally see it. You don't, <laughs> you don't see the, the carpet finishes on the, on the, on the studio floor. You see the, you see the, you see the building, but virtually, that's it. That's what you see. It's, pr- it's pretty amazing. And it's now, I wouldn't say it's mainstream, but it's moving into the mainstream. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what, what all of this allows is field data. All you need is a tablet or a good smartphone with 3G, 4G connection. Via the, via the cloud, you're back to the CDE or to your own proprietary servers, your own corporate servers, depending on where you sit in the, in the supply chain. But you're, you're definitely on to the CDE to pull down drawings, multidimensional design information in situ while you're looking at something that's either been installed or in the process of being installed, and you can see it. You can see the design intent. You can see what's in the process of being implemented. And that is of earth-shattering kind of change we're talking about here, really. Every contractor on earth is doing this now. Five years ago, seven years ago, nobody knew anything about it. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, it's incredible, really. We've come so far, and um, we're really only just getting started. So it's such an interesting area, and... I feel that our conversation today is, is really just the start of things and um, we will certainly be talking about this again. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you, Dermot, so much for joining me here today. Really appreciated speaking with you and thank you. 
You've been listening to Smart Construction, keeping you informed of updates in the construction industry. The information provided in this episode was correct at the time of recording. However, we recommend consulting your regular or DJ advisor to ensure no changes have occurred since then. Alternatively, you can contact us via our website, ordj.ie. We're here to help.